to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. My name is Tyler, um, and I just want to say it's really good to see some old, friendly faces, um, friends that came over from Brookline. Um, if, if you didn't know, uh, Forest Hills um, was, was planted by Coa Brookline a few years ago, so Stephen Costello, um, some people that were part of the Brookline congregation, and some people that um, really moved from kind of all around the country to come up and be part of this church um, was sent out, um, and you guys decided to plant during COVID, um, which turns out to be um, something that is possible. Uh, so really good to see some of you, some, some new friends, some old friends. Um, uh, we have a, a, a pastor's meeting once a week, and so I hear updates from Stephen every now and then about um, how God has used you guys in both the really hard things you have gone through and in both the really joyful things you guys have gone through. And so um, I just want to say I'm really thankful for how uh, the Lord has used you all in an incredible way and in a new part of the city and a new church and, and pray that he um, just continues to do so. So, um, honored to be here, honored to be with you guys. Um, if, you've, if you've been with us through the summer, we're in the book of James, um, and, and we're coming to the end. This is uh, the second to last week, so next week, uh, Matt will be preaching the last sermon in James, and um, as most of you have probably realized, James is really in your face, right? He says a lot of difficult things. He calls us out in a lot of ways. Um, he challenges us. He confronts us. And last week, he put ungodly rich people on blast. He said, uh, it's not sinful to be rich, but to use your wealth to oppress people and do ungodly things, that's wrong. That's bad. Right? He even uses the phrase that ungodly rich people should weep and howl for the miseries that are coming their way. And then he transitions to our text that we just read, and he's talking to Christians that are suffering. He's talking to Christians that are oppressed and, and probably suffering and probably oppressed because of these rich people is what it seems. And he brings up this idea of patience. Patience. I think uh, most of us, if not all of us, would agree patience is a good thing. Patience is something we um, ought to want to have. We ought to want to grow in and expand our ability to be patient. Uh, But it's funny, when you observe the world around us, when you observe how everything is ordered, it's actually structured in such a way that we don't have to be patient a lot of the time. Right? Everything around us, in some way, shape, or form, allows us to actually be impatient or it allows us to kind of bypass the need to be patient. Right, so you no longer have to get into your car, drive to Blockbuster, pick out your movie, go home, watch the previews to finally get to the movie. You can stream it instantly from one of your 10 devices. Right? Or uh, uh, if you want an answer to any question, almost any question in the world, you just kind of glance down at your Apple Watch and ask Siri, and you have an answer in half a second. Right? And those things, those are efficient, and there are good parts to that, but it doesn't enable us to be patient in any way. And, and think about how far we've come in those things, right? Anyone, anyone remember Cha-Cha, the texting service, years ago? Yeah, one? Yeah, so uh, there was a texting service before smartphones were really popular, and you would text 242-242, and you would text them uh, your question. And, and get this, it would, it would go uh, to, to a number where there is literally a live, breathing person who received that text. And ironically, they probably Googled your question, and then they texted you back, and you got a response two to three minutes later. That kind of thing is completely obsolete now. 
right? Years ago, not even recently, years and years and years ago, they went completely out of business. And it was, it was partially terrible business decisions, but it was also really because smartphones became a big thing and we had the ability to Google things instantly. And so people, when facing the choice of, I can do something quickly that I don't have to be patient for, or I can uh, exercise my patience and wait for two to three minutes, they chose the thing that allowed them to be impatient. I had uh, an extremely blunt reminder of the need for patience this past weekend. Um, Ashlyn, my wife and I, we were moving just a mile down the road, and um, as many of you know, moving in the city is just horrible, right? It's absolutely horrid. Um, And on top of that, uh, from about 12 o'clock onward, everything that could have gone wrong that day seemed to go wrong that day. So this is after church on a Sunday. I I pull up to the rental truck company. The first thing I notice, there's definitely not a truck our size in that parking lot. They're all really small. Okay, well, maybe I'm a little early. Maybe, maybe just the, 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 our truck is going to be returned soon. And so I go in, I give them my reservation number, and they say, actually, you're scheduled for pickup about 10 miles down the road. So I pull up my reservation number, I show it to them, and they're like, oh, we actually changed your reservation. We just didn't tell you. And not only do we change your pickup location, we changed you from a 20-foot van to a cargo van. Oh, and on top of this, uh, my, my wife and I, we had um, childcare arranged for Adelina, our seven-month-old daughter, and it was a nice friend who was going to watch her all afternoon and into the evening so we could move and then even had some time to unpack. And as Ashlyn is on the way to this person's house, there's a parade going on, and she can't even get within a mile to the house. And so she is driving around block after block after block trying to figure out how to get to the house. 45 minutes, an hour later, she's back in the same spot she started, just goes home. And so, in this scenario, every bone in my body, everything screams, you have a right to be impatient. And we can easily say, in scenarios like that, we have a right to be impatient, but we don't, we don't really acknowledge that actually patience is the best thing to have in that situation. Right? So we want patience as a virtue, but the reality is we don't structure our lives uh, in such a way that we have to use that muscle very much. Right, because there's always a faster way. There's always a more efficient way. But it's interesting, just as I was thinking about this this week, as I was reading uh, our verses from today, there's one area of life, one circumstance, one kind of arena, one, one thing where you cannot be impatient, where there is no shortcut, no way to short-circuit it, no way to get around it without dealing with it, and that's Suffering. Suffering. We try to be impatient in suffering, right? What's, what's the first step in grieving? It's denial. And I think in part, that's because we look at the situation, we say, this is hard. I don't want to be patient. I don't want to have to uh, exude the patience that it takes to process through this trauma. And so it didn't happen. And part of it's also, it's just a traumatic event. So of course you don't want to believe it happened. Right? But part of that has to do with patience too. And James, in this context of Christian suffering, he reminds them to be patient because God is in control. And that's our main point, kind of big idea for the day. You, Christian, can be patient in suffering because God is in control. Before I lay out kind of a roadmap of of where we're going, a quick word about suffering. Um, I, I would hate for anyone to come in here today and think, that because they don't have something obviously 
terrible going on in their life that this passage is not for them. Right? Because I think there's two, two sides to the coin of suffering, right? There's the more obvious forms, right? Things like um, death of family, death of friends, job loss, divorce, uh, all these things, illness, right? Those things that we would look at and say, that's obviously suffering. But I think we sell the work of God short uh, when we don't think about just a rough season of, at work as suffering. When we think about just um, having not the best boss as a form of suffering, right? Relational issues with friends or roommates, that can be a form of suffering too. Uh, saying goodbye to your friend as they move across the country, that can be a form of suffering. Heck, living in Boston, as great as this city is, there is a lot of suffering in this city, right? Being surrounded by people, the majority of them don't know Jesus. The majority of them don't uh, have uh, similar godly values. That can be a form of suffering too. Michael Emlett, he's a, a, a biblical counselor. He wrote a book called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners. Uh, Sufferers, Sinners. The three S's. Saints, Sufferers, Sinners. Some order like that. And his whole thesis is that you are all three of these things all at once at the same time. You are always experiencing those three things. And suffering is one of them. And so I say all this to make the point that if you walk in here, you got your heavy boots on and you're going through it. God has something to say to you today. And if you're coming in here and you're suffering in less obvious ways, they're less obvious, but they're no less real, God still has something to say to you as well. And so we're going to look at this idea, you can be patient in suffering because God is in control. We're going to look at this in two different ways, two simple ways. Why and how. Three whys, two hows. Why be patient in suffering? What reasons are there to be patient in suffering? Another way to ask it could be, what hope do we have in patience and suffering? What, what kind of things should we grasp onto and hold onto when we're suffering? And then how. James gives us a, a little bit of, of the manner in which we are to be patient in suffering, the way we should conduct ourselves. So first, why? And James gives us three reasons, and those are God has done something, God is doing something, and God will do something. You also bear with me. We're going to jump around the text a little bit. We're not going to go straight through. Um, look at verses 10 and 11 with me again. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In other words, James is saying, look at two things. Look at the prophets as an example of patience and suffering, how they handled it, and then look what God did. And these prophets, um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament or the, or the prophets at all, they didn't live lives that we would envy in almost any way. Right? And, 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 and he gives us the example of Job. Now, first glance, if I'm trying to encourage someone, you know what book I'm not going to go to? Job. Right? But James is wiser than us, and, and he's trying to make this example about patience and suffering. Job, if you don't know, he was um, a man who had a, a, a lot of good things in his life. He had a great family. He had a lot of wealth. He was upright before the Lord. And in an instant, he lost everything. Everything. His family died. His wealth was taken away from him. He got illnesses that kind of uh, just had boils on his skin. He had friends that tried to come and kind of comfort him, but they did a terrible job. But we have the last five chapters of Job where we realize that, that Job, he didn't handle it perfectly. 
But overall, he endured pretty well. Right? Overall, he endured pretty well. He was steadfast. And at the end, God returned that and more to him. God blessed him in new ways. Right? Take, take Jeremiah, another prophet. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he's weeping all the time. Right? Look at his story. So, so God calls Jeremiah in and he says, Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. Uh, before you were in the womb, I appointed you to be a great prophet. Jeremiah's like, oh, I'm on board with that. Me? A prophet? I could do that. God tells Jeremiah that he chose him to be set over nations and kingdoms, both to destroy and build up. Oh, okay. I'm going to do some ruling. I'm going to do some cool stuff. I'm, I'm on board. But he goes on. Now, Jeremiah, go and tell your king. Go and tell God's people they're about to be destroyed. Go and tell your king. Go and tell God's people that another country, Babylon, is going to come in and enslave them. You're going to be captive. Right? And the scripture literally says uh, that the earth will be a desolation. That the earth will mourn and the heavens will be dark. Jeremiah was like, whoa, I didn't sign up for that. I was thinking you could do some, you know, remember that bread falling from heaven type thing and the split in the Red Sea type thing? Like, why don't we do that again? But this is what God tasked Jeremiah with. And so for years and years and years, he's just relaying this message in different ways, shapes, or form to, to kings, to God's people over and over and over again. And no one listened to him. No one listened. I have to imagine that in his life, he, he felt outcast. He probably felt alone. Right, with the prophetic message he was giving them, it's not exactly positive. Right, if someone comes up to you and say the things that Jeremiah told God to tell those people, you're not going to be friends with them, most likely. He probably didn't want to be patient. And we can look back on this in such a way um, that it reassures us in our patience, our, our, our pursuit to be patient in suffering, because God did something in Jeremiah's suffering. I want to point out two things he did. Looking back, uh, I, 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 my guess is Jeremiah wasn't able to see or know what was going to happen to the prophetic words he uttered into his life that, in his attempt to obey God. I, I doubt he knew, maybe he had some inkling of, of an idea, but I doubt he knew that thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, we'd be talking about his story today and how he endured. I doubt he knew thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, his words would be in the Bible, right? The, the living word of God that is going to um, endure until the end of time. I, I doubt he knew that his words would be in there, but he was patient. And God did something. And maybe even more than that, God did something else too. And so maybe you picked up a little bit on Jeremiah's story and what was happening to, to God's people and, and the, um, the kingdom of Judah at that time. But um, Jeremiah uh, had this prophecy um, that, that, that this, this nation would come in and, and enslave the people, God's people. Right? And so this happened. And, and the king of that time, his name was uh, King Jehoiakim. Right? And Jeremiah prophesied to him that this would happen. The king didn't listen. And um, historical sources, extra-biblical sources, confirm um, that Jehoiakim was taken um, captive and he was put in isolation. And Jehoiakim was a really young king. He didn't have children yet. And so his ability to have children, his ability to have a family, to extend his line, hangs in the balance in the middle of this suffering. But God did something. So 
Jehoiakim, in his isolation, eventually found favor with the queen of Babylon, who influenced the king of Babylon, and they allowed Jehoiakim's wife to join him in isolation. And what did they do? They have children. And one of their children is named Shealtiel. Now, why is this important? Because Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, who fathered Eliakim, who fathered Azor, who fathered Zadok, who fathered Achim, who fathered Eliad, who fathered Eleazar, who fathered Mathan, who fathered Jacob, who fathered Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Jesus. Do you think Jeremiah knew? Do you think God's people knew that in the middle of their suffering, God was bringing about a savior? You see, in Jeremiah's patience, God was doing something. And James is telling us to look back. Look back at the people that had to be patient for God. Look back at the people who suffered for God. And you'll see God did something. Which gives us hope and assurance now. Right? If I can look back and I see, God, I see you were faithful. I see you did something. I've read the scriptures. I've heard about the stories of old. I've heard how you were faithful to your people and you have continued to be faithful. That gives me hope now. Not that God did something, but that God now in my suffering, in your suffering, God is doing something. And that's the second reason James gives us. God is doing something. A good contemplative question I I wish I asked myself more and maybe you wish this too is what is God doing in my life? What is God doing right now in my life? If I ask you that question, maybe you don't have an answer readily available. Okay? I don't either. And it can be hard to see. And that's why I don't think we can answer it so quickly. Right? We, we are visual creatures by nature. Hot in here. We are visual creatures by nature. For example, how do I know this stand is going to hold my iPad? Well, mainly because I can see it. Right, I can see this, this metal isn't flimsy, it's pretty sturdy. I can see that these things are, are tight, and I can feel that these things are tight, and it's not going to collapse on me. That's how I trust this stand. That's how all of us would trust this stand. And we often expect the same thing from God, though. Right? If we can't see it, if we can't feel it, God's not working. If I am unaware of what God is doing in my life. He's not doing anything. That's what we think. But look at the illustration James gives us, right? That of a farmer and fruit. Did you know that some fruit that grows on trees can take 15 years until it starts showing? And, and here's the thing, in that scenario, you know, you, you go to a farm and the farmer's like, yeah, these are, these, there are seeds in the ground and they're an apple tree or whatever. You don't question what's happening. You say, oh, I don't see it but I know things are happening. I know there's a seed down there and it's going to sprout. I can't see it, but you told me that and I know it. I know things are happening. Right, this, this very thing led John Piper to say that God may be doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. For many of us, it's actually God may be doing 10,000 things in your life and you're not aware of any of them. And so the question is, what do we do about that? we do about that? 
Paul in 2 Corinthians says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Though our outer self is wasting away, though we suffer, though we're dying, though we're wasting away, though we're going through hard things, our inner self is being renewed day by day. God is doing something. Though we're suffering, God is doing something. For this light momentary affliction prepares for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then this is the important part. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. You're suffering. You don't know why. You have a chronic illness. It's debilitating. You can't uh, do uh, things in life that you normally would, that you want to. The scripture says, don't look to what is seen. What is seen is is suffering and and brokenness. What is unseen is, is God's compassion, God's mercy, God's love for you. It's there. Again, verse 11, notice that, notice that the, the verb James uses is present tense. Is. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. And he's doing that in the context of talking about the saints of old and how the Lord was compassionate and merciful to them. But then he goes on to say, no, it's not just was, it is. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. So in your deepest, darkest moments, you can rest on this assurance that God wasn't just compassionate and merciful in the past towards his prophets and his people. He is compassionate and merciful towards you now. And here's the thing. It's an act of faith to believe that, especially in the middle of suffering. It's an act of faith to believe that when you can't see it, God is doing something. You can be patient in suffering because God is doing something. So God did something, God is doing something, and God will do something. And what will he do? He's going to come back. He's going to come back. Uh, Ashley and I, again, we have a seven-month daughter, seven-month-old daughter, Adelina, Addie, um, and she, shout out to Addie, she just started crawling this week. Uh, And so she's been just like a lot more mobile the past few weeks, and that's led to I don't even know how to explain this. You know if you know. Uh, She's endangering herself all the time now. Right. She's endangering herself all the time. Right. She's banging her head. She's falling over. All the things. And one of her favorite times to be mobile when she shouldn't be is at night in her crib. Right. And so um, this has led to her getting her leg stuck, her arm stuck, her leg twisted. She bangs her head, all the things. And um, this 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 week, late one night, um, we have a video camera in in her nursery. And I just pulled it up because I kind of heard her rumbling around. And um, and this child, this seven month old child has her feet planted in the middle of the, the mattress on the crib. And she's holding on to the railing, extending out her body like this, standing up. And I don't know. I don't know if it's her legs or her arms that gave out first, but she face-planted. She kind of belly flops and she face-planted, and she did that, you know, that, and then she proceeded to cry. She lost her mind, right? She lost her mind. It, it looked like it hurt. She was in pain. She was suffering. And so I, I, I get up and I, and I run over there, right? And, and as I run over there, what am I thinking? It's not... 
don't worry, Addy, someone who's capable of lifting you up, someone who's strong enough to lift you up and get you out of the situation to help you is coming. No, it's don't worry, Addy, your dad is coming. I know that there are some of us in this room that are going through it right now. Whether you're dealing with the death of a family member, whether you're dealing with a terminal illness for yourself or a family member, right? Some of us are experiencing crippling anxiety that make us second guess every decision. Right? Some of us are just dealing with the pressures of everyday life, work, school, kids, marriage. It's too much. It's too much. The scripture says, be patient. Your dad is coming. Be patient. The Lord Jesus, the one who loved you to death and beyond, he's coming back to get you. You can be patient in suffering. Just hold on. It won't be much longer. And when he does, he will wipe away every tear and death will be no more, neither mourning nor crying because the former things, the things that cause suffering, the things that cause pain, they will pass away. And you'll be with God face to face. Be patient because God has done something. Be patient because God is doing something. Be patient because God will do something. Last thing I want to talk about, we won't spend as much time on this. Um, James uh, speaks a little bit to how we are to be patient. So remember, three whys two hows. Two things he prohibits, two things that we so easily do while we're impatient, right? Grumbling in verse 9 and swearing, taking an oath in verse 12. So you might have noticed so far in the letter of James, it's actually really interesting. He puts a lot of weight and emphasis on sins that we consider minor, or we might be tempted to consider minor, right? Grumbling, yeah, it's not the worst of things, so we, so we think. Taking an oath, that seems just weird. We'll talk about that in a minute. How is that even a sin? Right? He also calls out partiality, playing favoritism, playing favorites. He also calls out an inability to control our tongues. He also calls out um, you and I assuming that we have tomorrow to ourselves. These are things that, that we wouldn't even consider first, second, or third level sins. We'd probably be like, yeah, that's like fourth level. That's like, come on. Like, if that's all I'm doing, I'm good, right? No, but James calls these things out because they pull you away from God. Right, in verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. If I'm honest, for me, grumbling is easy. Right, the word grumble it translates as a, a sighing deeply or, or a, a groan in impatience. Right, so in other words, don't complain against each other. Don't groan against each other. Now, there's a fair amount of debate among scholars. Why are these two things, grumbling and, and, and taking an oath, why are they mentioned in this passage? If you read it as a whole, it actually, at first glance, it seems a little out of place. Right, James, you're talking about patience and suffering and really heavy things. Why are you talking about this? But I think at the very least, we can acknowledge grumbling is an act of impatience. Right? James is saying, in part, be patient and avoid impatience by not grumbling. But we use the phrase, can I just vent for a minute? We think that absolves us from anything. 
right? And there's a, there's a time and, and space for, for healthy processing, but we take it too far when we go from no longer desiring godly wise counsel about a situation or a person, or we go from no longer desiring to process in a healthy way to simply complaining about the person or about the situation. And remind us about how serious this is. He reminds us that grumbling incurs the judgment of God, right? Not just the judgment of your peers, not just you'll lose some friends, not just people will look at you in a certain way. You will incur the judgment of God. Sometimes I wish James was like Paul in this scenario, right? Paul says, you um, adulterers, you idolaters, you thieves, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. We kind of get that. But James is saying that people who grumble are going to incur the judgment of God. It's a reminder that sin, no matter how small, is still sin. I'm inclined to believe that one of Satan's favorite things are when God's people underestimate their sin. He also tells us in verse 12 not to swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes or your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, this especially seems out of place, maybe more so than grumbling. Right? Like, and he's not saying don't cuss. He's saying don't take an oath. He's saying don't say, I swear on this that I'm going to do this, or I swear on that I'm going to do that. And again, just as grumbling intertwines with patience, so does taking an oath. Right? When we swear, what are we trying to do? We're kind of trying to get something quicker or make someone believe us so that we don't have to exude patience. Right? And these words, they might sound familiar to you. Jesus, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he utters something very similar. Right? He says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth. Let what you simply say be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. So to clarify, what's not going on here is James is not prohibiting you from going into a courtroom and uttering something under oath. What they're saying is don't let it, as much as it is in your control, the truth of your statement and the integrity of your character be dependent upon an oath. In other words, it shouldn't matter whether you take an oath or not. Your words should be truthful. And again, how this ties into patience, I think we try to swear to, to get out of situations, right? How many of us, whether uh, intentionally or unintentionally, we say, God, I will follow you. I swear if you do, fill in the blank. If you give me this, right? That's swearing in a way that James prohibits. And it's an act of impatience. Now, does that mean, because, you know, swearing, you fall under condemnation, uh, grumbling, you are judged by God, does that mean if the second you do those things, you're condemned? No. For, for those of us that are in Christ, that have trusted in his perfect life, his, his death on our behalf, and his resurrection and his lordship, there's forgiveness there. Right? The scripture says that um, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The scripture says that your life is hidden with Christ. But what it does say is this in James 1, that sinful desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Grumbling and swearing are serious because when they are fully grown, when they are fully realized, they bring forth death. Grumbling and swearing may not be the full tree, but they're the seed. In our attempts to be patient in suffering, don't grumble, don't take an oath, James says. As we close and leave here thinking about this idea of, of, of patience and, and suffering, uh, I just want to acknowledge it's not always enjoyable. 
It's not always enjoyable. Just because we're able to exude patience in suffering in a certain situation doesn't necessarily mean that that suffering is going to be easier. It doesn't mean that it's going to be any less real. But what it does is it enables us to pause and ask God the question, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And remember, it's not intuitive. It's not a muscle that we work out very often. It takes intentionality to pause and pray and ask God, God, what are you up to? This hurts. This stinks. What are you up to? And if you don't show me, I'm going to trust you anyways. Because you did something when other people suffered. You always have. I'm going to trust you're doing something as I suffer. And I'm going to trust that you're coming back for me and that suffering will end. You, Christian, can be patient because God is in control.